Hello, campus cronies, and welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, former college professor, current college administrator, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or is associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my very own serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a four. Point five. <laughs> no, I don't normally do half scale ratings. And normally I would probably just rate it a five of a full on five. But this case is just different. And you'll soon find out why. Yes, it involves murder, of course. And like I said, normally all murder cases, I always rate a five. But for lack of a better description, this story is just bananas. However, there are also a lot of important lessons to be learned, I think. So let me start off by asking you a question. How would you feel, or probably a better question would be, how would you react if you were sitting in a college psychology class and it was a typical day, just like any other day in a college classroom, at least you thought so when you first walked in, but when you get there, the professor tells you and the rest of your peers his deepest, darkest secret. Right then and there, in the middle of class, your professor admits to being a cold-blooded killer. Yes, this actually happened, and it is a very real story. I mean, yes, all the stories I bring you are, of course, very real, but this one just seems almost preposterous. But don't jump to conclusions just yet, at least not before you hear the full extent of the story and the circumstances surrounding it. This episode is titled Killer Turned Professor. So without further ado, let's get started. In the fall of 2004, a professor of environmental psychology at the University of Arizona admitted to his classes that he killed another student when he himself was in college. The professor, Robert Bechtel, who was now in his 70s, told his students that after being severely bullied, he snapped when he was 22 years old and killed a student in his residence hall 50 years earlier on January 12, 1955. You can probably picture all of the gasps and looks of both shock and horror on Bechtel's students' faces when he told them his secret. But, you see, Bechtel had a very distinct reason for telling them, and no, it was not just a random confession of a crime that had been eating away at him all these years. So, let's back up a bit and start from the beginning. Robert Bob Bechtel was born on October 19, 1932, in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, where he grew up and was raised by his parents, Leonard and Helen Bechtel. Now, sources don't discuss much of his early life, but according to a 2006 documentary titled The Killer Within, Bob was closest to his mother because his father abandoned him as a child. 
Bob described his father as basically just being ineffective. And from what he did remember of him, he knew his father wasn't a person he wanted to be like when he grew up. Regardless, though, Bob said his childhood wasn't that bad, as in he had no bad or negative recollections from whenever he was a young child at home. However, what did affect him and what stood at the top of his bad memories list were times when he was bullied, beaten up, and humiliated by his peers. According to the reporting of Jesse Lewis for the Arizona Daily Wildcat, UA's campus newspaper, Bechtel said he was bullied since he was four years old, which continued throughout elementary and middle school and then even into high school and college as well. Bob even made the comment that he thought college would be different and that the bullying would stop by the time he got to be of college age. However, according to Bob, it didn't stop. In fact, it seemed to get worse. According to the Killer Within documentary by Mackie Alston, Bob attended Swarthmore College in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania, which is located about 40 miles from where he grew up in Pottstown. Bob said he believed attending Swarthmore would basically be his escape from the bullying, but in the end, it was his ultimate demise. According to the documentary, students who formerly attended Swarthmore described the atmosphere as very rowdy, rambunctious, and essentially boys being boys. Even though I cannot stand that term or that phrase because, I mean, whatever, but basically that's what they were saying because they liked to tease one another and play pranks on each other just for laughs and giggles and all that. However, Bob described it very differently. It was his junior year that the young man would pick on him in the bathroom and just wherever. Plus, Bob was the RA of the floor, so I'm sure that that probably made it a little worse because he was like enforcing the rules. But one particular incident kind of pushed him over the edge. You see, a group of guys took Bob's mattress from his dorm room and put it outside on the quad for the whole campus to see. But they didn't stop there. They also urinated on Bob's mattress and then just left it there for basically Bob to find and clean it up himself with, again, everybody seeing him, and then for him to just bring it back inside the dorm room on his own or whoever he could find to help him. So it was sometime after this particular incident that Bob decided he had had enough. He was going to stop the bullying and teasing and mistreatment once and for all. So on January 12th, 1955, Bob borrowed a friend's car, drove to his mom's house in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, grabbed his hunting rifles, and headed back to campus. But I do want to mention that his mom wasn't there just letting him take his guns. I mean, she definitely had some questions because it was late at night and she didn't understand why on earth he'd need his hunting rifles at this hour. But he simply told her he planned on taking them back to sell them the next day for some extra cash. So his mom, unassuming, of course, accepted the explanation, and then she actually sent him out the door with a piece of coconut cake for him to eat on his way back to campus, or I guess when he got to campus. So Bob said he placed the cake in the seat beside him, as well as the guns, and off to campus he went. Bob said he was feeling some kind of elation in taking control of his own life against these enemies who were bullying him. According to the Killer Within documentary, when he got back to campus, he had basically planned a mass murder in his head. And Bob told the Arizona Daily Wildcat, quote, I was going to stop it all by shooting up the whole place, end quote. So he went into his dormitory, strapped with ammunition, 
But then he honestly didn't know who to kill first. Like he didn't know how to begin a mass murder in the first place. So he found himself first going up to the third floor, the floor where he was the RA, and he went to the room of Francis Holmes Strozer. Apparently, he was one of the young men whom Bob claimed had been bullying him. When he arrived at Strozer's room, Bob opened the door and shot into the dark. Those shots were, unfortunately, deadly. Bob then proceeded to go down to the second floor where he fired two more shots into the hallway closet, and then he fired one more shot on the first floor before exiting the dorm. Thankfully, but still tragically, Bob only shot the first student he approached, Holmes Strozer, and the rest of the shots were not aimed at any certain individuals, which also meant nobody else was hurt or killed. Immediately after the shooting, though, Bob felt instant grief and shamefulness wash over him. He said the feeling of wanting to shoot up the whole dorm had basically dissolved. It was then that he walked over to a different dormitory where his friend Clinton Fink was staying. He woke Clinton up, told him what he had just done, and then asked Clinton to go with him to turn himself into the police. And Bob did just that, turned himself in the same night he fired the shots. According to the Arizona Daily Wildcat, Bob went to prison and sat on death row for a few months. That is, until a psychiatrist soon determined he was insane. According to a 2004 article from the Associated Press that was published in the Arizona Daily Sun, shortly after this, a psychiatrist for the prosecution agreed with the other psychiatrist's diagnosis, but this one further determined that Bob was incurably insane, which meant Bob was then sent to Fairview State Hospital for the criminally insane in April of 1955, where he was supposed to remain for the rest of his life. But Bob only remained there for the next five years. And it was during those years that Bob said he had a revelation or an epiphany of sorts, and he realized he could have a meaningful life by helping others, even if it meant helping them right there in the hospital. And Jesse Lewis reported for the Arizona Daily Wildcat that Bob actually started a school in the hospital teaching patients math, English, and geography. So when officials at the hospital witnessed Bob's interactions with the other patients and they realized, like, I guess he basically had a lot of insight, they ordered another evaluation and ultimately determined that Bob could be released. So Bob was sent back to county prison as he, or maybe it was county jail, but as he awaited his January 6th, 1960 trial. At the trial, though, this guy was found not guilty by reason of insanity and was released, like set free, not sent back to the hospital, but released. <laughs> and let me tell you, it just really doesn't make sense to me. I mean, they determined he was incurably insane, so they sent him to the hospital. But then the hospital determined that he's not that insane or he wasn't that insane, so they released him. But then the court finds him insane again? <laughs> I, I really don't get it. Can someone please tell me how that makes sense? All I know is that this guy was incredibly lucky and was basically given the second chance of a lifetime. Even a sociologist from Princeton University said Bob was super lucky. The sociologist, Dr. Catherine Newman, said, quote, I think it's a remarkable thing that someone who did what he did is given a second chance. I don't think we're in the second chance business now in our society. End quote. 
But the documentary actually mentions that his release likely had something to do with a letter that Holmes Strozer's mother wrote to Bob's mother, which was presented at the trial. The letter read, quote, oh, and P.S., get your tissues ready. (laughs) But it said, Dear Mrs. Bechtel, we wish we could in some way convey the sympathy we feel for you and your great trouble. We know your heart aches, as does ours, and we wish we could say something to comfort you. We hold no bitterness toward your son, only pity, because we know he is a sick boy. We pray God will heal his sick mind and bring peace and quiet to your soul. Sincerely, Francis and John Strozier. Wow. I mean, women in the 50s and 60s had a certain way with words. I mean, if that had happened to my child, if some random kid would have shot and killed my kid, I can promise you that those are not the words I choose to say in that situation. So to say I'm blown away by her compassion and sympathy is basically an understatement. Anyway, Bob Bechtel was in part released from prison and the mental facility because of that letter. Now, after Bob's super rare and unusual second chance he was given, he decided to take full advantage of it and do something positive with his life. He ended up returning to school and obtained a bachelor's degree from Susquehanna University, a private college in Selins Grove, Pennsylvania. Then he went on to earn his doctorate in psychology from the University of Kansas in 1967. At some point while he was in Kansas, he met Beverly, who would later become his wife in 1972. And Beverly actually knew when she married him about his past and the fact that he was quite literally a murderer. Beverly Bechtel said, in fact, she learned Bob's secret on their third date. She said, quote, he said, there's something I have to tell you, and I don't know if you'll ever want to see me again, end quote. Well, clearly she did want to see him again. I mean, since, you know, they ended up getting married and all. But Beverly said she didn't take the news lightly. She contemplated what he told her. And ultimately, she decided that this was part of his past. And the man she knew now was in no way a murderer. She said Bob was one of the most kind, genuine, and caring people she knew. She said in her heart, she knew that that part of him, whatever part snapped and took another human's life, was not part of him now. After Bob and Beverly had been married for about four years, in 1976, Bob applied for and was offered a faculty position as a professor of psychology at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And that position is where he stayed until he retired in 2010. So that brings us back to the beginning of this story in the fall of 2004, when Bob dropped that bomb on his classes and to the world, sit tight, I'll explain shortly, but when he dropped that bomb about the fact that he had killed someone 50 years ago. So I'm sure the big lingering question you all are having right now is why? After all these years, why on earth would this professor decide to tell his story now? Well, you see, Bob and Beverly have two daughters, Amanda and Kara. Amanda is actually Bob's stepdaughter, but she was very young when he and Beverly got married, and then Kara came a little later after they were married. However, Bob knew at some point that he needed to tell his daughters about his past, about taking the life of a fellow college student in his dorm. So when Kara was 19 and Amanda even older, though nothing really says specifically how old she was, but... When they were older, he broke the news to the girls, but they did not take it as well as their mother, not by a long shot. 
On the Killer Within documentary, Kara explained how she felt and the emotions that ran through her when her father told her what happened. She said, quote, up until I was 19, he was this one person, this amazing, great, wonderful everything. And then I learned something else about him. So I worry about him in the sense that his character will be maimed forever and that his dying legacy will not be that he was a loving, amazing father. It will be that he was a killer. There's got to be something else, a past tense for killer, end quote. So needless to say, both Kara and Amanda struggled with the horrible news their father dropped on them, but Kara took it particularly hard. She was confused, hurt, heartbroken, just all of the emotions and full on grappling with the fact that her very loving, kind father had done something so horrific and unthinkable. But she also knew the story, her father's story of a life redeemed needed to be told particularly because of the bullying aspect. And Bob was in complete agreement. Plus, he said, it could help others be a lesson to so many, especially in light of the Columbine shooting that occurred a few years prior in 1999. Bob said, quote, 50 years ago, everybody was saying, don't even talk about it. It's in the past. It's all gone. And the psychiatrist was saying, change your name. Just don't mention it to anyone. And so the idea was to just be quiet, but I just can't sit here and let what happened to me keep happening to other kids, end quote. So Kara, trying to find a way to get Bob's story out while also trying to make sense of it all in her own mind, approached filmmaker Mackie Alston, according to a 2006 article in the Los Angeles Times by Patrick Goldstein, Kara approached Alston after he had finished teaching a film class at Union Theological Seminary, and Kara told him she thought her father's story about bullying leading to murder would make a good documentary. And Alston agreed, especially after he learned that Bob was now a pillar in his community. He was a devoted professor father, he was active in his church, and also involved in community organizations like Habitat for Humanity. So Alston sat out to help Bob tell his story to the world, which manifested in the Killer Within documentary that was actually financed by Discovery Films, and it aired on the Discovery Channel in 2007, according to the LA Times. So when Bob Bechtel told his classes his deep, dark secret that day in 2004, it was actually being filmed as live footage for that documentary as Bob admitted to the world that he had killed someone after being severely bullied in college. And when he told his students his story in class, he had already gotten permission from the president of the university to do just that. The president of the University of Arizona at the time, Peter Likens, was interviewed for the documentary and explained why he agreed to Bob telling his story. Likens said, quote, He came to this university in 1976, and he didn't lie in his applications. He's never been convicted of a felony, not that we even asked in those days. I also think the work he's doing is important and that we need to only look at Columbine or the many, many instances of rage played out among youngsters. So his effort to deal with this issue in the classroom and as a professor of psychology, I respect, end quote. When Bob told his classes that day, though, you can probably imagine all the different reactions the students at the University of Arizona had. For example, one student said, quote, my reaction was anger, that the person sitting across from me had killed someone and is still sitting across from me. And regardless of the reason that he killed someone, I definitely feel for the victim, 
no matter how they die, end quote. But another student said she could, in fact, relate to his story, and honestly, it could have been her. She said, quote, I got bullied in school, too. In high school, things would get a lot worse. I was drugged down the hallway by about four or five guys who thought it was just really funny. And then there was a pole, and the guys were running, and one grabbed my foot on one side, one grabbed my foot on the other side, and just as fast as they could. And then her voice kind of trails off, and she just she doesn't really finish that sentence, but I think you kind of understand where she was going. And then she kind of picks back up, and she says, there's so much out there. There's so many young adults that have more horror stories than I have, end quote. However, another student who was just randomly interviewed as he was walking across campus, which means he didn't know the full story and the interviewer just wanted his reaction. And so I wanted to throw this in there because I thought it was funny and because I think it probably shows just the shock. And if, if people didn't really know the full story on campus at the time, like when they read about it in the newspaper or heard about the documentary being filmed, they kind of just had all sorts of reactions. But <laughs> this one kid said, quote, <laughs> he's definitely going to get fired. Hey, that's not normally the best thing to put on your resume for being a professor, you know, <laughs> end quote. Anyway, with as much mixed reaction as the students at the University of Arizona were having, so too was the public and other people affected by Bob's story. Take Holmes Strozer's brother, for example. You know, Holmes Strozer was the victim of Bob, the person whose life was suddenly taken in Bob's deadly act of rage. When Strozer's brother, John A. Strozer Jr., found out Bob was blaming his rage shooting on bullying, he said that couldn't be further from the truth. He said, quote, it was very shocking to me to read about the person that killed my brother for no reason is now saying that he killed him because he bullied him, which I know was absolutely not the case, end quote. Apparently, according to John Strozer, he himself reached out to former students at Swarthmore who witnessed Bob's so-called bullying and who were living in that environment every single day. They, too, told him that they didn't believe Bob was bullied, at least not to the extent that it garnered a shooting spree and murder. One student by the name of Harry, even though I don't really know his last name, but his name was Harry, but he even wrote John Strozer a letter about the incident. And that letter said, quote, here's the true story of events in January 1955. Robert Bechtel was never bullied or harassed. If he believes this, it is the product of his insane mind. It is a fact that there was horseplay and rowdy behavior in all the dorms in 1955, just as there was before and after in every male college dorm. There was also serious beer drinking, particularly on the weekends, which undoubtedly increased the rowdiness. Once again, none of this directed at Robert Bechtel or any single individual. Imagining Holmes Strozer as a bully is so outrageous, it should be dismissed out of hand. When I told my wife, who was my girlfriend in 1955, that I had heard from the brother of Holmes Strozer, she said, oh, he was the nicest guy. If Robert Bechtel believes he could emerge as some kind of hero in the fight against bullying, he should not be encouraged or helped. What he is, is a killer who was judged legally insane. That is what he will always be. End quote. Yeah, I'll let all that sink in for a bit before I continue. Anyway, Harry, the one who wrote the letter, and John Strozer are not the only ones who said Holmes Strozer was not the bullying type. Actually, most people interviewed said he was quite the opposite. 
For example, one former Swarthmore one former Swarthmore student recalled that Holmes was a person who everybody liked. He was described as easygoing, extremely intelligent, as well as a handsome, sweet kid. Also, remember how Bob went to get his friend Clinton from another dorm, and then that's who Bob asked to go with him to the police station? Well, Clinton said he never actually saw what was happening as far as the bullying. He never witnessed a firsthand account, only what Bob would tell him. Clinton explained this, saying, quote, I think it's unlikely there wasn't some conflict going on between him and that group of students. I don't think he would have made up those stories out of whole cloth. He might have exaggerated, and I won't be able to tell. I don't know because I didn't see what they did, end quote. However, other former students did confirm Bob's stories, particularly the one with the mattress. Ron Sutton, one of those former students, said the whole third floor of that particular dorm, the one where Bob lived and was the RA, was having trouble with a lot of pranks, and many of which were not only directed at Bob. But Ron Sutton did admit that he thought the whole mattress prank thing went a little too far, but still he said he wouldn't call it bullying. Um, side note, isn't that the exact definition of bullying? I mean, taking pranks too far where someone gets hurt in some way, whether that's physically, mentally, or emotionally. Actually, y'all, I looked up the dictionary definition of bullying. According to our handy Google search dictionary provided by Oxford Languages, bullying is when people, quote, seek to harm, intimidate, or coerce someone perceived as vulnerable, end quote. Um, yeah, it sounds like their pranks were actually forms of bullying and no, that is not okay. Regardless, apparently, Holmes Strozer would usually be the one to tell the others to stop if it seemed like they were going too far. Ron Sutton said he just doesn't agree with Bob Bechtel about the bullying, and he doesn't think Bob should, quote, paint with such a broad brush what went on at Swarthmore as bullying, end quote. Still, Bob's daughter, Kara, said the situation must have been so bad or Bob must have perceived it to be so bad that the ripple effect caused him to explode the way he did. Kara said, quote, he had to have felt justified enough that this was an answer to something. I have to believe it was that bad. I have to trust. But I am unsatisfied with the explanation of the Swarthmore incidents because I know it's coming from one perspective and I question it, end quote. Now, I do want to point out that Bob Bechtel seems to have a very even-kill personality, as in his emotions are very consistent, according to the documentary. Because, listen to this, in the documentary, he visited Swarthmore and the location of the incident for the first time in 50 years, and he had zero emotion. He was just, like, flat and almost seemed like he needed to control his emotions and detach himself from what happened. Bob himself even said, quote, when you lose control, the nice things are not likely to happen. So I'm not about to lose control of myself. I'm not interested in crying. I have this thought that, you know, why should I cry for people? People used to make me cry for amusement. Sorry, not anymore. End quote. However, Bob did admit that when he read the letter that Holmes Strozer's mother wrote to his mother, he did in fact weep. But he said he couldn't ever bring himself to apologize to Holmes's family directly because it terrified him having to actually be face to face with them. Bob said, quote, I guess I feel this is such a terrible thing that remorse. What's that mean? 
This is terrible beyond belief. I mean, that I could do something like that, end quote. Even the director of the documentary, though, Mackie Alston, said he just simply couldn't figure Bob out. Alston said he had no idea whether Bob was truly remorseful or just a simple, mild-mannered guy. For example, in the documentary, Bob's oldest daughter, Amanda, broke down at one point while the family was visiting the mental facility where Bob was committed to for five years. Though Bob himself showed no emotion, he did show empathy toward Amanda, and he did embrace her in a loving, fatherly hug, like he was trying to console her. Still, Alston told the LA Times that he'd never met someone like Bob who was so hard to decipher. Alston said, quote, There's no easy diagnosis. Either he's traumatized or mentally ill, or he got away with murder. I thought to myself, I'm a good interviewer. I'm going to crack this guy. I had 10 ways to do it, and I tried them all, but he was a total conundrum, end quote. Now, I'll admit, Bob does seem like a person who is hard to get an honest read on, but I think Bob's wife, Bev, probably knows him best, and she offered a bit of an explanation into his lack of emotions. She said she would hate to believe that Bob doesn't feel any remorse, and she thinks he simply just can't express it because basically he's like locked it away and put it in a box of its own for so long that it's hard for him to actually go there and open that box. Anyway, before I end this episode, I want to leave you with some words from Kara Bechtel, who said, quote, I've lived with a murderer my entire life. He tied my shoes, taught me how to brush my teeth. He was the first one to feed me and taught me about peace and love. That's a murderer, and I'm going to have to get used to that. But something fundamentally changed in him because it had the chance to. What a sad world that would be to live in, where no one is forgiven and no one is given a second chance to start over again, end quote. After Bob Bechtel retired from the University of Arizona in 2010, he remained in Tucson until he died at the age of 85 on January 16, 2018. According to his obituary, he is survived by his wife, Beverly, of 45 years, his two daughters, Amanda and Kara, his granddaughter, Eliana, as well as his adopted grandchildren, Cynthia, Mary, and Frank. Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 23. But before I go, I do want to say that I take bullying very seriously, as should everyone else in this crazy, nutty, screwed up world we live in. I firmly believe it is not okay to pick on others to the extent that it becomes bullying or harassment or if it can even be perceived as bullying or harassment. I say this because I think we have all been bullied in some way or the other. And y'all, it hurts and it can and does leave scars. So if you are acting like a bully, stop right this minute. Or if you are experiencing bullying or harassment in any way and simply need to talk it out or need some resources, then I encourage you to go to the stopbullying.gov website. So it's stopbullying.gov, where there are all types of free resources available to whoever might need them. You can also call the National Stop Bullying Helpline at 1-800-273-8255. It is free and available 24-7. So again, that number is 1-800-273-8255.
As always, be sure to check out this podcast on social media, where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Podcast on Instagram and Campus Crime Chronicles on Facebook. Okay, well, that's all for today, so bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Big Mad Media. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.